did Jesus' death by crucifixion really happen? Did it really happen? Since the beginning, the very beginning, even, even in the days of the, uh, of the apostles in the first century church, there has been opposition to God's truth and to his church. And opponents of God's truth and God's church even go so far as to make the bold claim that Jesus' death by crucifixion never really happened. Now, some say it never happened because a person named Jesus never existed. However, this is actually a pretty weak argument, but doesn't stop people from making it. It seems that, you know, the, the way folks work is that if you can get there first with your message and you can be louder than everybody else, you're going to be listened to, right? It's a weak argument, so we're going to kind of look at it a little bit. It only really works on people who already want to believe that or people who don't know much about history. Uh, today, we would call that gaslighting. Anyone know what gaslighting is? You've, you've heard that phrase? Yes. It's basically someone says, oh, that never happened. And you're like, what? Oh, no, it never happened. What? It's a little more complicated than that, than that but it's... Uh, something that goes around nowadays and uh, basically people find it very confusing and disruptive, but it's not something new. It's just that's a new way of describing it. Now, some people admit that, yes, a crucifixion happened, uh, but it wasn't really what the Bible says it was. And so this is another common way of denying that his death by crucifixion really happened. Yes, there was a crucifixion, but the, what the Bible records, now, Jesus wasn't actually really dead. I don't know if you've ever heard this one before, but no, he wasn't really dead. He merely appeared to be dead. You know, maybe he was drugged, you know, like you see in these spy movies, you know, where someone takes a drug and then they fall on the ground and they, everybody thinks they're dead. And then, you know, you think they're dead and you're watching the movie and then, bing, they pop up about 10 minutes later and you're like, what? Oh, yes, it was a pill that I took and this, I was able to fake death, you know. It's absurd. But that actually is an idea that's been out there for a very, very, very long time. The idea is, you know, he merely appeared to be dead. And then while in the tomb, he was revived or revived himself. And then he escaped, perhaps with the help of the disciples. And then he showed himself to people who were dumb enough to believe that this was all really happening, that he had actually risen from the dead. Addressing both forms of skepticism starts in the same place. We're going to go to what is written. I mean, if you want to know, uh, did, Jesus, did uh, Julius Caesar ever exist? Did he ever really do the stuff that people say he did? Where are you going to go? History books. Yeah. Is there any uh, YouTube of... Julius Caesar? No, there isn't. If you want to know about Genghis Khan, where are you going to go? Uh, if you want to know about some peasant who lived in Germany in 800 AD, where are you going to go? Well, with that, you're not going to go anywhere. <laughs> not a whole lot of information. The fact that there's even information about someone in history means that it was significant, doesn't it? Right? Okay, so... When we go to the written record, you might think, oh, he's going to talk about Bible, right? Yeah, well, we are. But first, let's, let's consider this. 
Jesus and his crucifixion is actually recorded in Roman historical records. Now, who, who put Jesus to death? The Romans, right? And they wrote it down in their records. And we have a record of it from this guy named Cornelius Tacitus. And he lived from which what would be 56 AD, which would be about 20 years after, well, more 25 years after the crucifixion. So he was writing while, you know, people like John were still around, still preaching, still teaching. He was probably a little kid when Paul was out and about. But this guy, Cornelius Tacitus, he wrote a 16-volume of history called the Annals of the Roman Emperors. You know, he's a history book. It's like he's creating an encyclopedia, if you will. And in it, he recorded this. This is a quote, obviously translated from Latin. But here's what he wrote. Christ suffered the extreme penalty, which is their way of saying crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procurators. Pontius Pilatus. Now, like I said, you know, if you wanted to learn about some peasant who grew up in Germany in 800 AD, you probably wouldn't find any references at all because people like that, they're not important, no one cares, no one writes about them, right? Jesus was not an important person. He was a, basically a peasant. He was a carpenter guy, you know, lived in the northern part of Israel. The fact that he made it into the Roman history books is significant. Now, at the time this was written, the church was still very tiny and generally disliked and persecuted. Ignored for the most part, but sometimes persecuted. This Cornelius Tacitus that I'm mentioning was actually very, very much against this weird new religious movement uh, which refused to honor the Roman gods. And... Cornelius Tacitus was not some Christian guy who was trying to sneak his beliefs about this Jesus person into the history books. He was not a friend of the church. He was an enemy of the church. He mentions the crucifixion because he knew it happened. And he thought that by mentioning it in this way, he was letting people know about the shameful death that their leader suffered and therefore convince others that this church, this, this, this thing that's happening in the Roman Empire, these people are weak and foolish. Look what happened to their glorious leader. This is where the guy's coming from. This is why he writes it down. So this well-known Roman historian, no friend of the church, confirms that Jesus existed and that he was crucified. So we've gone to what is written. What is written. Now, he's a Roman. Roman records. We're looking at Roman stuff, right? The Romans put him to death. And they used crucifixion, which was a standard that they used for certain types of crimes in certain situations. All right? A crucifixion was an extremely brutal form of execution, and it was a method that was designed to have the maximum impression on those who witnessed it. 
You know, and sometimes they would do this to large groups of people because they were trying to make a statement. And that statement would be, don't mess with Rome. Or bad, bad things happen. And people could walk down. Sometimes they'd have a whole you know, road with people crucified in there. And they didn't just die. They hung on those stakes or crosses or whatever they were for hours moaning and groaning and people could see it. It was used as a deterrent so that others would not do whatever the perpetrators had done. And it was considered as uh, this guy Tacitus, Cornelius Tacitus, wrote the extreme penalty. I don't think the Romans enjoyed doing it, but they had a reason for it. Okay, uh, Crucifixion was a certain and sure death for the victim. People who went through crucifixion died. They didn't survive it. And what's more, the historic descriptions of crucifixion, which are there in the history books as well, they match closely what the Bible says about Jesus' execution and death. So this crucifixion is another aspect of history. And when we consider what history tells us about um, what a Roman crucifixion was like, if you think about it, and I want you to bear this in mind as we go through the gory details, there is simply no way that Jesus or any other person could have survived the beating and then being nailed to this stake and then followed by three days and three nights isolated in a cold, dark tomb. It's just not going to happen. So let's take a look at a crucifixion, okay? Step one. Step one, leading up to the execution, Rome administered a severe beating, a lashing. And if you're reading the King James, it's called a scourging, all right, scourging. We don't really use that word so much, but scourging does make you think, oh, this is particularly bad. Go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 26. At the end of Jesus' trial before Pilate, Pilate had, had offered them an opportunity to let this man go, king of the Jews. He's your glorious leader. You want to let him go? And they said, no, give us this man Barabbas instead, right? And in verse 26, okay, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged, lashed, scourged, okay? And then handed him over to be crucified. So the leather scourge, you know, the whip, that uh, they used it wasn't like the whips you see in uh, an American Western, you know, whoosh. not like that at all. It was a piece of leather that was uh, braided and woven in, worked into the braiding were pieces of bone and pieces of metal that would stick out. And then the ends of the metal and the bone would tear into the flesh of the person who was being scourged, and with every stroke, ripping at and stripping away and tearing off the muscles and the tissues of the body. 
and the bleeding flesh would have exposed muscles and sinews, sometimes even down to the bones, sometimes the internal organs of the victim. And many victims or many people who went through this process would actually die just from the scourging itself. You know, and I, you've probably seen some movies where they've tried to simulate what the, you know, the beating and the scourging of, of Jesus would have been like, right? And, you know, sometimes they try and make it look really awful, but I don't think anything that we can do or Hollywood or whoever can do really is able to match the gore that would be on display after an actual scourging. And a lot of times, that was enough. They would die just from the scourging. From a medical point of view, just knowing what we know about the human body and how it functions, the extreme pain and the loss of blood would very often send the victim into a state of shock. And their blood pressure would, would drop and they would faint, collapse, and another symptom or reaction would be they'd have extreme thirst. Because the body's trying to compensate what's happening to me, help, and blood pressure drops, intense thirst, body's looking for assistance. So go to Mark 15, and let's take a look at verses 20 and 21. So the... Scenario here is Jesus has been handed over. He's in the hands of the soldiers. They're, they're doing their thing to him. They, he's, he's scourged. He's beaten. And, uh, verse 20, we pick it up and it says, when they'd mocked him, they, they'd put him in these fancy fake robes as if he, you know, to mock the fact that he's supposedly a king. And they took off the purple robe that they'd put on him and they put his own clothes back on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. And a certain man from Cyrene, named Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Or the, you know, whatever he was going to be strung up on. He was so weak that he couldn't carry the cross. That was part of the whole ordeal, was that the person being crucified was to carry out the uh, instrument of their own death. And in this case, Jesus was so weakened by the scourging that he couldn't even carry the the cross. So this man was uh, basically grabbed off the street and forced to do it for him. Uh, John 19, verse 28. Uh, This is uh, when Jesus is, he is strung up on this, crucifix and later knowing that everything was now finished and so the scripture would be fulfilled Jesus said I am thirsty so one of the symptoms of this whole process was an intense thirst now this scourging this beating uh, which you know is kind of grisly and I saw a couple of faces go well that's the intended that's, the, that's what I'm hoping to make you uh, feel. Uh, go to Isaiah 50. This, this scourging, this beating, was part of biblical prophecy and its fulfillment. 
Isaiah 50, verse 6. Speaking here of the suffering servant, a well-known prophecy, well-known to the Jews, well-known to the church. This is about the Messiah. And it says this, I offered my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard, and I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Remember how they mocked him. So written hundreds of years before Jesus was born were predictions of the treatment that the suffering Messiah would receive. Um, let's take a look at another. There are a lot of them. I could basically make a whole message just about the prophecies. But let's take a look at Isaiah 52, verse 14. Again, the servant who comes in the name of the Lord, but who suffers strangely. He's not treated very well. In uh, Isaiah 52, verse 14, actually, let's back up to verse 13. I, I think that says what I want to say better. See, my servant will act wisely, and he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Okay, that sounds pretty good. Jesus had a different interpretation or uh, understanding for the apostles to uh, drink in, which kind of changed the perspective on what it meant to be lifted up and exalted, because he was talking about crucifixion. But verse 14 says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, and his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. I think, you know, back in Isaiah's day, or before Jesus came and went through what he went through, this would be pretty hard to understand. There's this Messiah, he's raised up, he's exalted, but then it also says, but he was beaten up to the point where people couldn't even recognize him as a human being. That's a scourging, isn't it? That's a scourging. So badly beaten and bloodied and maimed that he was scarcely recognizable as a human being, which fits the picture based on our understanding of what a Roman scourging was like. This isn't just, you know, Jesus being beaten up or hit and given a black eye. One more, Isaiah 53, verse 5. And this will come into play as we go through the process of his execution. In Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. And we'll get back to that later. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, his beating, we are healed. So the beating was part of what Jesus, the Messiah, had to go through to pay for us and so that we might be healed. So the second step of a crucifixion, step two, that's, okay, we went through step one, scourging, nasty stuff. Step two, the agony of actual crucifixion. As I mentioned earlier, from a medical viewpoint, after this scourging, whipping, beating, the victim would already be in serious to critical condition, even before being taken away to be crucified. And, uh, you know, as far as medical assessments, I pulled that one out of uh, Strobel's book, A Case for Christ, and that would be the assessment of Alexander Methrow, who's a medical doctor who worked together with uh, Lee Strobel on this, on this book. Just going through the, you know, 
crucifixion and, and, and basically it's case for Christ is talking about all this sort of evidence, all right? Interesting material in there. I'm just skimming some of it, okay? To crucify a person, the Romans used iron nails. An iron nail would be, you know, I, sh I should have brought one, but they would be, oh, I don't know, I don't know, about that long. They'd be about three-eighths of an inch thick, and they'd be made of, of iron. And uh, they would be driven into the victim's wrists, you know. So just think, you know, your wrist is actually kind of a sensitive thing, isn't it? You know, and you think about someone, just do that, poke your wrist just with your finger, and you already start to get the heebie-jeebies. Okay, so this spike would be driven through the wrist of the victim, okay, to fasten them to the, the wooden apparatus, okay? Um, in Bible times, the wrist was considered part of the hand. They drove nails into the wrists in there between the arm bones. You know what your arm looks like? It's got those two bones there in the forearm. Well, the nail spike would go through the bones, and then you would have sufficient strength to hold a body up. Because, you know, the hands drove a nail just through the hand. The hand would just sort of rip apart. Because, you know, you know how the bones go in the hand, right? They're not going to hold the body up. The flesh is just going to rip. So the nails pounded into the wrists would crush this big giant nerve in there called the median nerve. Uh, the largest nerve going to the hand. And you know, the hand is very sensitive and the nerves are very complex and there's a lot of nerves in, your, in the tip of your hand, right? This median nerve is a juicy nerve and uh, the largest nerve going to the hand and driving a three and three-eighths of an inch wide spike through that would cause indescribable pain. As I mentioned, just, just poking your finger in your wrist and thinking about it Gives you the willies, doesn't it? So hanging from these nails or spikes, the, in, the victim then proceeds to die a slow and agonizing death, which really the end comes through asphyxiation. They, they might have died already, like I mentioned, because of the scourging and the blood loss, but the process, if it, if it, goes through its whole agonizing four to five hours, and it probably ends up with the person basically drowning because of the liquids that settle down into their lungs. To breathe, the, the victim has to push up because another nail, of course, is driven through their ankles. And they could push up on that. It would probably hurt a very a lot. They could push up on that because they're trying to free their lungs up so they can continue to breathe. What would happen, though, is eventually that spike down through their ankles would tear up against the tarsal bones in their legs. And this would go on and on, and they would, as they lost energy, they would continue to push up to try and gasp for a little bit more oxygen until complete exhaustion takes over, and the, the person, the victim, wouldn't be able to push up on that nail through their ankles anymore, and they would just slump down, and then the lungs would begin to fill up with, with fluid, 
and they would die. Go to Psalm 22. It is the most extensive biblical passage that goes through the actual crucifixion. And uh, you, you may have heard someone give a whole sermon on Psalm 22 and just lining it up with the crucifixion. If you haven't, it's uh, something you, sh- you might want to go on the UCG site and take a look for one like that. We're just going to dip in here for a little piece of information in verse 14 and 15. Uh, going through all this agonizing process, we hear that we learn this in verse 14. I, this is this is the one being crucified, and poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. So the bones, and so I've mentioned the bones and how it affects the bones, because the bones are this, you know, the the this, the strong part of the body on which, you know, the you know, nails driven through just a hunk of flesh isn't going to hold up 200 pounds. No, but bones would. And the bones are pulled out of joint. And it says in verse 14, all my bones are out of joint and my heart has turned to wax and it has melted within me. And my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth and you lay me in the dust of death. So once again, we are reading about Christ's suffering related to his bones related to the exhaustion, and also once again mentioning the extreme thirst that the victim would be feeling. Go to Matthew 27 and verse 34. This is an interesting little tidbit here. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. Some translations might read uh, wormwood. Some might read myrrh. Uh, You get the word myrrh when you look at the uh, parallel gospel. This was a painkiller. That's what they were offering him. It was drugged wine. They would work as a painkiller. So before they actually went to drive the nails through his wrists and ankles, they offered him a form of painkiller wine and gall, right? And both Matthew and Mark include this little detail. And I think they do that because they wanted readers to know that Jesus refused to drink it. It says there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it and realizing what this was, he refused to drink it. So what they want you to know is Jesus was not drugged. I don't know if you've ever picked up on that little piece of detail, but that's what it's getting at. Jesus was not drugged. And I mentioned it in the introduction that, you know, this is one of the theories that people have about the crucifixion. And I saw some people kind of looking, what? Um, yeah, no, then it was around from the very, very beginning. And I don't know exactly because the scriptures don't say it exactly, but the idea that he could be drugged to fake death after all this and then go into the tomb, it's absurd. But it's been one of the arguments that's been out there to just say, no, this is all fake. It's all a hoax. Um, Nope, sorry. Now, Matthew and Mark saying that Jesus wasn't drugged doesn't cut any mustard with anybody, right? 
Because I think an obvious comeback to that is, oh, well, <laughs> they're just lying. They're just saying that because they don't, they're just saying, oh, no, no, he wasn't drugged. But they have no proof, right? So them saying that proves nothing, does it? Drugged or undrugged, the human body could not survive the ordeal of a Roman crucifixion, which is the real point, which is the real reason for the gory details. But wait, because there's even more reason to accept the death of Jesus as something that, you know, is real. It really happened. Okay, so let's talk about the shedding of blood. Shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood is a big part of what we talk about at the Spring Holy Days. It's part of what we go uh, into when we are walking our way through the Passover service. And the reason that we say that is because it's an instruction we receive from Jesus himself, the one who was executed, who did shed the blood. Go to Matthew 26, and um, that's a page back, probably, and take a look at verse 28. This is part of the uh, Passover service when he takes the cup and he says, drink it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood is poured out. So while he was still alive on the stake, being executed, you know, just to reel it back, he's, He's got the nails driven through his wrists and his ankles. He's up there. He's in agony. He's dying, but he's still alive. While he's still alive on the stake of execution, his life blood was poured out. And this is the blood of the Passover lamb. He is our Passover lamb, and his blood is shed for us. This is the blood of his sinless, blameless life, the, the perfect lamb of God, which is given up so that death might pass over you, so that the penalty for your sins might be considered paid in full. His blood is shed so that you might live. So this blood is very significant on a theological understanding of our um, justification before God, the sacrifice for sin, but it's also important in our understanding of the execution of Christ and the sureness of his death. Now Jesus might have just bled out from the scourging. That could have been enough. He might have just bled out. And, you know, then having large nails driven through wrists and ankles, uh, th there would be a lot of blood, right? However, there was one more way in which his blood was shed that provides added certainty to the finality of his death. Go to John 19, verse 31. And we'll read verses 31 through 34. Now, Jesus was executed right as the holy days were beginning. And it says here, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, a high day, a high Sabbath. That would be the first day of unleavened bread. 
Now, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, this 15th day of the first month, which was the first day of unleavened bread, which was one of the annual Sabbaths, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. When it came to Jesus, it was found that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers had pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. And these things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. One, not one of his bones will be broken. And two, as another scripture says, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. You might, I don't know which translation you're reading along with, but when we hit that verse, it says, uh, verse 33, I, I read it in the way I think it's meant to be understood, but what it says there is, but when they came to Jesus, they found out that he was already dead. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, etc. Okay? So, a lot of the ways that it's translated can make it appear that Jesus um, died and then was later stabbed by this, you know, Roman soldier. And that's how a lot of people interpret it, okay? They, they saw that he was already dead, and then one of his soldiers pierced him with, with this spear, bringing out a sudden flow of blood and water. However, there's a problem with that. Because if a human is dead, and you run a sword through them, the blood doesn't come out because their heart has stopped beating, right? That's how it works. Uh, so there's a problem with the normal way of reading that. Uh, there's a problem you know, with that event sequence because dead bodies, once the heart stops pumping, uh, they wouldn't have a flow of blood come out. It makes more sense that the verse there is bringing in a new thought, all right? Jesus didn't need to have his legs broken because they saw that he was already dead because one of the soldiers had run him through with a sword. He was already dead, okay? So that's why in contrast to the two criminals crucified with him, not one of Jesus' bones was broken because Jesus had already died when his side was pierced so that his bones didn't need to be broken to speed up his death. They were going to break the legs of these guys so that they would not be able to push up on the, the nail through their ankles and they would just slump down and, and then they would die more quickly. That's what this was all about, okay? But it wasn't necessary in Jesus' case because he was already dead. Now, verse 36 says, These things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That fulfills the requirement that the Passover lamb did not have any of its bones broken. Exodus 12, verse 46. It, the Passover lamb, must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. And there are reasons for that, I think symbolic reasons, but it's also 
a prophecy. And, and it came to pass. His bones should have been broken along with the other two people um, who were being crucified at the same time. But they weren't. Now, verse 37 of John 19 says, And another scripture says, They will look on the one they have pierced. That is from Zechariah 12, verse 10. Let me go there. Zechariah 12, verse 10. If you want to check it out in your own Bible. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. This is speaking of the uh, restoration of Israel and time. And they will look upon me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. This is a well-known sequence of prophecy about the Messiah. And it says they will look upon the one who they pierced. Jesus was run through with a sword and the blood and the water flowed out. The final fatal thrust that ended Jesus' life is worth a little bit of attention here. So this soldier who ran him through, he thrust this spear, because I think it would be a spear or it would have to be a very long sword. He thrust this spear into Jesus, and this man was a Roman. He was a Roman soldier, well-trained, proficient with the instruments of death. All right, And he would know which part of the body to pierce in order to quickly ensure that the victim was undeniably dead thus fulfilling his duty as an executioner. So, standing below Jesus, who was on the cross, this man would have thrust upward, up under his ribs, okay, and the, there would probably be a fairly heavy uh, spear sword with two sharpened edges on, on, on the tip there, would enter up into the abdomen, and then open up the stomach and pierce through the diaphragm and would cut wide open the heart. And all the big blood vessels that surround up there. And lacerate the lung. And that wound would be large enough to permit an entire human hand to be shoved up into it. We'll, we'll come to that. And blood and water would pour out from it. Blood from the pumping heart, the veins and the arteries. And water would come from the water that was accumulating in the lungs because of the ordeal of crucifixion. And the whole event described by John is providing us with medical details that he couldn't have dreamed up. And back in those days, people didn't know all the medical details. But he could see what he saw. John could write it because he saw what he saw. So go back to John and chapter 20. Verse 24. Now this is uh, taking place when Jesus has 
been raised from the dead, and he's appearing to the uh, disciples. And uh, this is his appearance to the one named Thomas, who, who, who wouldn't, he wouldn't listen to what the other ones said. He, had, he said, no, I've got to see this for myself. So in verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, when he had appeared to them. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and reach out your hand and put it up into my side. Stop doubting and believe. That's why I'm saying that the thrust of this weapon up into his side would have created a wound big enough for a person to stick their entire hand into. That's what Thomas did. So the idea that Jesus didn't really die, or that he fainted, or was drugged, and was later resuscitated, is, is just absurd. Okay, When you consider the clear statements from various sources that he did die. Go, go to Mark four, 15. Okay? Mark 15. And, and think about what this guy Cornelius Tacitus wrote as well at the same time as we read this. Mark 15, verse 43, says that uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, so he was an important guy in Jerusalem there, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. And then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. So this trained Roman soldier who was familiar with death. I mean, these guys knew a dead body when they saw it. They knew if someone was dead or faking it. He knew that Jesus of Nazareth was dead, and presumably that was recorded in the Roman records, which were later referenced by Cornelius Tacitus in the annals of the Roman emperors that it was written down in the Roman records, that this man was dead. And, you know, it wasn't a fake death. This guy knew what a dead body looked like, and he knew how to kill someone. The Romans were brutally efficient, and they kept great records. <laughs> Some of the things that are known about them in history. And they were very proud of their history. They were a great way for God to provide a reliable testimony of the fact that Jesus did die. Now, Jesus' burial place, we kind of touched on that a little bit when we got into Joseph of Arimathea. His burial place was guarded, okay? He was buried by this man, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent man in Jerusalem, right? And this guy, his real existence would have been well known to people, 
at that time, if they were reading the Gospels, they would have been able to go and, and say, you know, I, I want to talk to this Joseph of Arimathea guy and see if this is all for real. And they would have been able to go and, and see him, talk to him. And there would have actually been a location of the tomb and people would have known about it. And up until 70 AD, they would have been able to go and, and you know, look at it and say, yeah, I guess it really happened. I don't know how old jo Joseph of Arimathea was, how long he lived. It was all wiped out in 70 AD. So all traces of it are gone. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, I've been to Jerusalem. They do not know where the tomb is. Why? Because the entire city was wiped out and leveled and every stone was taken and you've read about that. No one knows where it is. They, they'll take you to these tours and say, this is where we think it is and this is where we think it is. And you can look at it and go, yeah, but we don't know. But in those days, they did know. Let's go to Matthew 27. So anyone writing a bogus account, you know, if Matthew or Mark or Luke were writing a bogus account, people would, would have been able to go and check it out. Say, I'm going to talk to these people and see if this is really what happened. Plus, it's written down in Roman records that he was dead, 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 dead. So Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Now, could a person really survive Roman crucifixion? And then hide out in a tomb for three days and three nights with no medical care. And then roll away a gigantic rock that was sealed and then slip off into the night, eluding trained Roman guardsmen posted to prevent just such a thing. No, it's absurd. Now, Jesus' enemies acknowledged that the tomb was empty. After three days and three nights, the women came to the tomb and they found that it was empty and they, they told the disciples and a word of Jesus' resurrection began to spread. Okay? And what was the reaction of, of, of Jesus' enemies? Did they respond to the disciples' claims by saying, well, the disciples are just lying? Did they say, you know, they're lying. Jesus' body is still in the tomb. No, they didn't say that, did they? Uh, did they claim that the disciples were hallucinating? No, no, they didn't. Instead, what did they do? They bribed the Roman soldiers responsible for guarding the sealed tomb to spread what they knew was a lie. They told them to spread a cover story to claim that Jesus' disciples had come and stolen the body while they slept and that they would cover for the soldiers if they got in trouble with the Roman governor. Let's go to Matthew 28. We'll just read that little tidbit there. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. 
When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say that the disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. As I mentioned in the introduction, conspiracy theories, if you want to call them that, but theories about, well, the, the, the death of Jesus wasn't really what the Bible says it is. have been around from the very beginning. Now, this is a little different from the scenarios that I painted, but the concept is the same, okay? These guys knew that Jesus was dead. They didn't deny the fact, okay? So they weren't denying the fact that he had actually died. What they deny is his resurrection. So this is a little different from what I started off with in my introduction. And the resurrection, well, that's a different topic. That's a different topic than what we've been discussing here today, which is the certainty of his death. I've tried to limit it to just that. However, let's just go over a few points regarding the testimony of his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. Not that this is meant to be part of the overall argument about reliability, but here we've got testimony from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, verse uh, 3 through 8. For I, Paul, received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Most of the people whom Paul is referencing here were still alive when this letter was written, when it was circulating around. Okay, They would uh, be able to talk to people as witnesses and say, yeah, no, I, yeah, that's what I saw. Now, it's been suggested, just while we talk about conspiracy theories, it's been suggested that these appearances that Jesus made, multiple appearances, were hallucinations on the part of the disciples. Okay, Mass hysteria, hallucinations, all right? But that theory really can't account for the fact that these were appearances that happened at different times, in different places, to different groups of people. And, you know, Jesus appeared in ways that were convincing to all the apostles and to very large crowds of people in various places and situations. Not the scenario for mass hysteria. His appearance was also in bodily form. That's another really good point. We don't have time to get into all the details of that. But uh, Jesus appeared to them in bodily form, not just some sort of wispy dream. Okay, Uh, Luke 24, verse 36. Uh, Jesus appears to the disciples. While they were still talking about whatever they were talking about, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why why do doubts arise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is me. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they 
still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Don't, do you have anything to eat? So he, he ate something in front of them. He appeared to them in bodily form. Okay, That's why he says, taste, you know, I want to taste the food, handle my hands, feel the wounds. This is me. And the disciples went on to provide a tremendous testimony. They'd seen this, they'd witnessed it, they'd seen him rise, you know. And the testimony that we have from them is what's recorded in Scripture. And there's two really good sections of that. Acts, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 23. And you can read that on your own. And another good one is Acts 5, verse 17 through 42. They defied death threats imprisonment and they still continued to speak about this resurrection this raised jesus and um, preaching that he was the messiah the risk of their own lives and they did suffer and james the apostle james was even put to death his head cut off only weeks before these same men had denied that they even knew him, right? And they ran. <laughs> but now they were willing to give the remaining years of their life and risk whatever life they had left to testify to the reality of what they'd seen happen. For the one that they knew had, who had conquered death. So had they all been participants in a giant hoax? Would you really believe that all these men were willing to give up their lives for something they knew to be a lie? They knew they'd stolen his body, or they knew that he'd been drugged and he was off in India teaching some guru something. No. Jesus' death is the logical conclusion. I mean, he actually died. It wasn't a hoax. And his resurrection is based on reasonable conclusions not hysteria. The death of Jesus Christ, well, the death meets the reasonable standards of what we would consider a historic fact. We go to what is written. So making bold claims that he never existed or that his crucifixion were a hoax, are just, they're just silly arguments. They just really are. Talking about his resurrection is slightly different, but denying his death is just absurd. Denying his existence is absurd. Why would someone make such an argument? Why? Why make such a goofball argument? Because the timing and the manner of his death. I mean, if his death, you know, we went to the Roman records and we looked at the crucifixion and all this, and his death is pretty sure, right? Because the timing and the manner of his death tell us something very important about the scriptures as a whole. Prophecies of Jesus' death were written hundreds of years before the fact. No one denies that Isaiah or Zechariah wrote what they did centuries before Jesus ever came along. No one denies that. Atheists don't deny that. What they will do is quibble away at, well, this isn't really that, and this never really meant this, and so forth. The scriptural record... When you combine what we have in Scripture with, you know, what little tidbits we get from history, like the Roman record that I mentioned there, indicate that Jesus' death came to pass 
through crucifixion. And the details of death by crucifixion match the prophecies. And these aspects of the biblical record cannot be easily dismissed. And in this way, the death of Jesus, because that's mostly what we're focusing on today, the reality of his death, the death of Jesus and the manner in which he was killed serve as a powerful proof that the Bible is exactly what it claims to be, which is the Word of God.